Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. In this week's Artelligence Podcast, Elena Platonova interviews the father and son team behind Transatlantic Gallery, Listen, as they celebrate their 50th year in business. Today, I'd like to welcome Nicholas Logsdale and Alex Logsdale, representing two generations of art dealers in the Logsdale family, heading the International Listen Gallery. Alex, the international director, is at the helm of Listen New York that opened in 2014 and now has two locations in Chelsea. And Nicholas started the gallery in London decades ago. To be precise, Listen is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year which provides us with ample topics for discussion. Alex, Nicholas, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. First of all, I'd like to congratulate you on Listen's 50th anniversary. Well, nobody is more surprised than I am, but uh, um, Alex isn't surprised because he's been doing it for 10, 15 years. So I think he, before he, I realized that he was thinking about whether he wanted to do this, uh, he, already, he was already ahead of me. <laughs> well, you were moving fast and you have done a lot over the past five decades. How are you going to celebrate it? We have, uh, we, we have a, a sort of comprehensive book coming out, which is, it, it, you know, it's a chronology of all of the solo exhibitions that every artist has ever had at the gallery. And then a kind of list, a list of other shows, but it's, um, it really focuses on solo exhibitions. We, 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 we thought long and hard about whether to do a book or not. And since our 20th anniversary, certain people have put me under a lot of pressure to, oh, we have to do an anniversary book. And, and I started looking at other, other galleries and what they'd done. And uh, mostly they were all rather unsatisfactory because they were, they were, they were sort of promotional, self-congratulatory on the whole rather than um, in, informational and educational. So what we really tried to, to aim for with this book is for it to be uh, very matter of fact. It's a, it's a historical document more than, um, more than anything else. So we, we haven't missed anything out. Every single show, including the mixed exhibitions, is in one form or another documented in this book. So on the principle that every artist, an artist gets more or less a double page spread for each show. Um, it, it's, it makes very interesting, even to us, uh, reading, because we're able to actually look at 50 years in a very different way. So there's about 150 artists we have shown during that period, plus another 100 or more in mixed exhibitions. That's about probably five, 500 plus exhibitions. Well over 500 exhibitions. And the other thing we've done is, is exclude anything outside of the gallery. So the gallery's activity is far greater than what you see in the book. So we, so don't, we didn't include uh, art fairs or you know, museum, museum, museum exhibitions or anything like that. It, it's really, it's really <clears throat> gallery shows. And that's already 1,200 pages on its own. And, <laughs> and I, I had a chance to have a quite a good glimpse through the book. And first and foremost, it, it is about the gallery, but it is about the artists and their work. Is, is putting your artists first and keeping 
a low profile for yourselves is your conscious strategy? Well, it's a belief rather than a strategy. Without the artists, you, you, you really, um, I mean, to use a, a rather vulgar English metaphor, uh, you don't have a bucket to piss in. Um, <laughs> no, but the, the, artists are, the artists are the gallery. Without, um, this is, the gallery has really always been led by artists, and it's, and it's actually, strangely, um, for a very long time, been a gallery of young artists, meaning that these, the artists that were shown in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s were all young artists who then became very established artists. And it's so where the gallery has really become, really is dedicated to sort of nurturing and growing careers. So this is, this is very clear when you look at the book. So the major artists that we represent, in most instances, we, we started working with them when they were either completely unknown or relatively unknown. Or fresh out of art school. Yes, or, like Anish Kapoor or Tony Craig, uh, both instances of that, as are many others. Um, and uh, so we, I think it was also partly to do with where we were located, in rather a good location, just on the, on the literally one street away from the West End. And this enabled us to uh, grow uh, as our needs grew. And uh, it's almost as if... Uh, Somebody was very much on our side because a building came up for sale next door pretty much every time we needed it. And so uh, we, we actually occupied uh, in Bell Street uh, about nine buildings uh, on two sites. Which have been joined yeah, together yes, over, over the years. years. And yeah, it's, I think the, you know, something that's been very important and, and important for the gallery, important for its artists and why the gallery has retained um, artists for so long is the gallery has grown with its artists and the artists have grown with the gallery and that, that symbiotic relationship is, is crucial. You know, I think most galleries tend to follow uh, on, on a kind of market principle and our, I mean, I, my philosophy was always because I started as an artist so I wasn't, I wasn't entering it as a businessman. And in the early days, I, I, I didn't even look at it as a business. I looked upon it as something really interesting to do and uh, to learn from. So, you know, the market believes that the, the, the art follows the money or that that's the way to do it. We believe that if you follow the art, the money will come if the art is good enough. Now, of course, this is very much oversimplifying it because every gallery is different and different galleries have different points of view with regard to this. But for us, that's worked terrifically well. Um, not, not even as a strategy, but as a belief. I think strategies are all very well. It's beliefs that count. And, and uh, uh, you know, the other principle was never give up. Uh, you, you, you carry on through, the, through the, um, the good times and the bad times. And, the, the, you know, and we've seen both. Uh, we're now, of course, enormously larger than we were when we started. Uh, but, uh, you are, and it is quite an incredible story. A lot of <clears throat> your artists seem to agree that you put them forward and the, the money is secondary. Anish Kapoor reported his opinion a while ago, saying that the thing about Nicholas is that he is an artist first. And 
you did start as an artist back in 1967, a very promising one indeed. Your work was even selected for the Young Contemporary Show at the Tate Museum. And yet, just months later, you dropped out of college and set out to be an art dealer. Well, a facetious joke I have is that when people ask me about these things, and so, well, when you was shown in the, a, a very large painting in the Duveen Gallery, State Gallery, by, by the time you're 21, uh, what more is there to do? So move on. Um, <laughs> so uh, you moved on. Well, but I think it was, uh, it was, it was a sort of, it was a quite a radical thing for you to do at a time because there were no galleries showing young artists at the time. But, but what I think is interesting is, and, and what, what, I became very well aware of was that there were thousands of artists, stroke students, graduates leaving every year with no place to go. And at the time we opened, that many of the galleries had closed and they were running, you know, they were running in a much higher cost level in the West End and in the West End of London, in Mayfair, etc. And, and, and this, this situation in London it's been like it's been breathing in and breathing out. Mayfair has gone through, well, West End has gone through being very uncool to being very cool and fashionable. Uh, it, it's, it's still like that. People move in and then they move out because things get too expensive or there's, there's, there's a recession or something like that. That's how things change. Uh, I've heard you say fashion passes, greatness lasts. So perhaps can be applied to this story. But you did start with humble beginnings. In the book, you quote uh, your own joke that all that is needed for a gallery opening is one artist, one critic, one museum curator, and one collector. Yes. (laughs) Right now, we'd still be grateful for that if if any one of them were absent at at the opening of an exhibition. Fortunately, it's got a bit more... For us, it's got a bit more highly evolved. But really, for the young galleries, that's what they need. But I think at this point in time, you know, the, the art world has become so sort of large and, <clears throat> and, and it's, become, it's become a kind of spectator sport. And when we have openings, you know, in London or in New York, we have hundreds, sometimes thousands of people showing up. And that's, um, that's quite amazing in a way that there is such a, an appetite and interest for contemporary art. Well, something that, that actually, there are, there are a lot of things about the, the gallery world that don't, don't get me very excited anymore. But one of the, such a joy when I see a great show opening and the whole street is full of people, cars can't get in. Uh, it's just, it's, 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 at our two venues. So between one and the other, which is about... Um, in London. In London, this is, is, it's about, uh, what, 500 feet or 1,000 feet between the two. The whole street is full of people. Um, this is in the summertime, of course, when it's nice and warm. I, I weigh way show. I mean, it's just amazing. And we must have had, we must have had three, 4,000 people come to the opening of our first Ai Weiwei show, and it, I, the, the police came and had to shut down the street. It was really that extreme. They couldn't tell people to move on. They had to shut the street instead. And we didn't expect this at all, otherwise we'd have notified them. But um, that's, that's an extraordinary feeling. Also, the other thing that happened 
in that respect was the, the opening day of um, uh, the, the Carmen Herrera show, which we opened with on 24th Street. Oh, on uh, May 1st, 2016. Yeah. The, the, we had, I don't know, we had 2,000 people. No, no, no. We had 5,000 people come to the opening. No. Yeah. Anyway. It, <laughs> there were thousands and thousands of yeah, people. Yeah, were, it's hard were, to keep count of everyone at this really, point. It's really quite remarkable. And, and that's, that's, that, that especially with someone like Carmen, or Ai Weiwei, these are artists that have, um, that are very different, I mean, they have very different approaches to their work, and, uh, but they have fascinating stories, and they have fascinating lives, and this is also what is part of the narrative that drives people to want to experience their work. You started with minimalism decades ago, and you're still working with many of those same artists, but you are also showing minimalists who have not appeared in the limelight as much, and you're bringing them there. There's this beautiful consistency in your commitment to minimalism. What, what interested me was that when I started, minimal art was not almost, well, it was only in New York on the horizon, let's say. And what, what was actually current in Europe was, uh, was, uh, was more South American art and South American concretism or, or European concretism. With Signals Gallery. Signals Gallery in particular, but mm -hmm. not the only ones, mostly coming out of Paris. Now, isn't it ironic that 50 years later, uh, not necessarily the Parisian version of it, but many of those artists did live in uh, Paris at the time, like like um, Camargo or or um, Soto, or uh, I mean these are not artists we we especially show, although we've done a Camargo show. Uh, and after fifty years, the, the the art world has gone full circle and back to especially South American concretism. I think um, there's an interesting thing happening in the world at the moment, and there is this revisiting of things that people feel maybe have been overlooked and why were why were they overlooked you know for instance in new york at the moment there's a, a beautiful helio artisica show at the whitney and that's an excellent example that that really that work is extraordinary and i think the fact that it's in new york is wonderful though no one i think it's probably the first time many people have seen that that work and this moment in time is for some reason or another is really a moment where people are looking at what kind of holes or gaps in the narrative of our history are missing. Well, also, I would say this, that it's, 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 it's a little bit of a ballpark way of looking at art, but there is some truth in it. The art that survives uh, and still is still gaining ground in, 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 in interest and in how people uh, regard it and value it. Um, if it stands the 50-year test, it's there to last into a much longer narrative of art history. And I think that for, for listen, for me, I was incredibly fortunate to be where I was when, it, when, I, when I was there. That is to say in the, in the mid to late 60s, because this was a very important uh, cultural time, uh, in particular in the UK. I, you know, people say, oh, how was, how, it must have been so exciting with swinging London and so on. But actually, I wasn't very interested in that, and I wasn't part of it, to do with fashion and, and, and trendiness. And, and, and a lot of people with uh, ponytails. 
I wasn't against, but I mean, I wasn't a hippie, if you see what I mean. I identified much more with the sort of beat generation and the existentialists, and I thought that was all much more serious. And that sort of happened before the swinging 60s. So I, 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 I was into that when I was at school, and it still has influence on me. Thereby, the gallery opened. I made a, um, a mental decision not to go backwards to, and now after 50 years, of course, we've got 50 years to go backwards to if we want to. But the, the real, the real uh, intention of doing what we're doing now is to, is to move boldly into the future, which uh, Alex is going to have a, a more and more so their responsibility for. We, we work very well together. Um, we seem to see eye to eye on those things. Which is, is but we have very um, very special for me. We have very different responsibilities as well. We 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 have our own sort of territories and relationships, and some of them overlap and others don't. And it, it it's very it's deeply complementary. I also think contemporary art is, is 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 generational. So as we work with still work with many artists of my generation, uh, who, who you know the, the the oldest of which has actually been working with us for fifty years, Peter Joseph. But uh, relationships with artists who are still with us, like Anne Graham um, or, or Bob who's, Mangold, who's that, those relationships go back to the late 60s, early 70s, as do many others. Um, of course, sadly, many of them are not with us anymore. But uh, the gallery's program has always got, uh, developed with the times. And I used to call it that the, the, the gallery should be always aiming to work within the nouns now. Um, I, think that's, I think that's been quite um, effective over the years. The gallery's gone through several major shifts of, shifts of focus without ever losing its identity. You know, it started out with the, the conceptual artists, followed by the American minimalists. Well, and, actually, with concretism. Well, concretism, and then, uh, then after the American minimalists, the British, new British sculptors, yeah. Then the 90s era of uh, video art, then the sort of 2000s post-conceptual artists, and um, and then you know we're up to today and we're into a whole different arena. And it, it's 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 very it's fascinating to look back at that history and how it all ties together without ever really losing what it aimed to do. As you mentioned, you, you work with a lot of younger artists and perhaps are aiming to attract this young collector base in New York. That's, that's a lot of competition for you right there, as established as you are. Perhaps it's a question to Alex. How, how do you win this uh, promising collector base with so many up-and-coming and established galleries vying for their attention here? Um, one of the things we set out very clearly and consciously to do in New York was to show artists that had either never had an exhibition in New York or not had an exhibition in New York for 10 years or more. And with uh, one or two exceptions, every single show we have done has stuck to that. And that is about bringing a different point of view, um, bringing a different ethos, but also bringing work to New York that we feel is important and is understood to be important outside of New York, but is maybe not necessarily known to a New York audience. When, when we were starting to plan the gallery, which, which was 
Alex started putting a team together four years before we opened. Or was it more than that? Probably more than that. And so in our discussions about how we were going to define this and why it was relevant and why we wanted to do it, was that we felt that we had our, applying our way of doing things, which is not relying on um, the interest being there in every instance when you show something that can make such a good show and it's such a surprise that you add something to the conversation in New York. And New York's very inward looking. Um, there was, I mean, you know, when we, the impetus was that we had, I forget, somewhere between 12 and 15 artists that had absolutely no New York representation. And they wanted exhibitions in New York. They have very regular museum shows, solid collector bases in America, Europe, Asia, but no gallery representation. And, and it seems, it seemed just like a logical progression to give them a platform to exhibit. Let's go to a few concrete examples. Um, for instance, Stanley Whitney is one of the artists you are supporting here in New York. You have a show of his drawings right now. Could you talk a little bit about the rise of his market and your, your efforts in, in that respect? Well, the show we have up at the moment on 10th Avenue is a drawing show. Mm -hmm. and it's a drawing show that spans from 1989 to 2017. This is something that has never been done. Stanley has never really shown a lot of drawings or the progression of drawings or the evolution that exists in that work. All of his practice comes out of drawing and sketching. And that's not necessarily evident in the paintings when you first see them. So the real aim of the show was to expose the process that goes into what he's best known for. And I think it's been quite illuminating to people. It has been to me, indeed. A lot of these drawings are very recognizable in terms of his work. But the surprise is that the paintings are the sort of even area of color, each one of them. Whereas in the drawings, he leaves a lot of room for the color to breathe. And I was... Um, quite impressed by that difference, but also by the fact that a lot of these drawings are preparatory sketches for the paintings that would look entirely different rather than being independent works. It's a great way to discover his working process and the evolution of his ideas from the sketch to um, the final works that we're more familiar with. So, so given that this is his third show with us, we, we've done two shows in, in Europe more, yeah. Yeah. more than two years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, from and, and before that, we'd, we'd started working with him in, in London and in Europe. And he, he, we got so much interest. And so we felt that the thing to do with New York, because that's where he's from, was to give as much information uh, about his historical background, which could be done much, much more easily with works on paper, especially as he still had them, because most of his paintings have already gone to museums and, and, and collections. So also as an introduction to a major show we're going to do, um, when, when is that, Alex? We have a Saturday. No, it's going to be sometime soon. Uh, uh, and uh, so, you know, in, that's, in that sense, we are, we are um, putting something in the conversation that's always been, in, in this instance, 
that's always been there. Uh, well, it's been there for quite a while in New York, but it, this, the conversation has been silent uh, for a long time, and 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 now and now it's audible, uh, if that's a way of putting it. Um, and these things happen to artists at certain times in their in their history. Um, in this case, it's it's his time, just as just as when we first showed Carmen, um, it 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 was about timing. All of these things are, are, are nearly always about timing. Well, speaking about timing, you mentioned in the, your anniversary publication that it's important to breathe a new life into the gallery every decade or so. And it seems like you are often in line with the time. For instance, going back to your celebrations, you are planning a massive exhibition in London, Everything at Once, the name that speaks for itself. And the format of the show is very contemporary. It's a multi-generational, multidisciplinary show. You're presenting in this massive space in collaboration with the Vinyl Factory, which is also a record label. So you are entering the new age in the spirit of the age. Is that being in step with the time, part of your successful formula, in your opinion. And could you tell us a little bit more about this show? It's a collaborative venture with the Vinyl Factory. And they, they basically invited us to do this. But I think one of, the things that's, one of the things that is really interesting about the show is it is not a retrospective show. It is not a 50th anniversary uh, look back at mm -hmm. the history of Listen Gallery. Uh, also, I'd, I'd add that absolutely truthfully, this opportunity, talking about timing, uh, w was not actually connected with our 50 years. It was an opportunity to do something now, and it happened to connect with the 50 years time, but time it is, frame. But the show, is, the show is about both looking forwards and backwards, and what the interconnectivity between those two narratives are. And, and, and also, it... it it's not all the artists we represent. It's a little bit over half of them because all of them would be just too much. Mm -hmm. And it, it, so the work was the artists were chosen for a complex variety of reasons, but in particular, larger scale works that were appropriate for this space. This uh, kind of format of having shows that are off-site, often large scale and sometimes in unconventional spaces, has been um, quite popular these days. Do you feel like it's a thing of the future and perhaps it could eliminate, at least to a certain extent, the need to open multiple brick and mortar spaces in various locations? I think it's, it's about context and I think it's very, it's interesting to do these pop-up spaces, shows, um, when it's, when there's an interesting context, when there's an interesting reason. I don't believe in them happening for the sake of them happening. And I don't, I don't believe that they will replace the gallery system at all. But it is, it is, a, it is a quandary. I mean, you know, the, the art market and the art world has changed dramatically. The proliferation of art fairs has, has made it very, very strange. You know, we have, um, people who buy regularly from the gallery and maybe have never stepped foot in the gallery. 
So it's quite an unusual time we live in. And, and, and conversely, I mean, this, this, I think we're occupying about 200,000 square feet in this building. So uh, 120,000. Oh, okay, sorry. 120,000 square feet. That is, that is... Uh, it's um, large, it's sizable. It's twice the size of the original Saatchi collection space. Uh, it's on th three floors, is it, or two floors? Three, three. floors, I think. Um, this is, this is a, just a little bit of interesting anecdotal history. This was the headquarters building for Arthur Anderson, uh, which was a global accountancy firm. And they went bust over the Enron scandal. You may, and it's probably before your time. But this building has been sitting derelict for a long time. And, and recently, the owners of the vinyl factory uh, acquired it. And they want to put it to, amongst other things, regular cultural use. I'm not sure if it's You are again connecting the dots throughout history. Isn't that a remarkable thing? We did a show like this uh, almost 20 years ago when Tate Modern opened. And we wanted to do something to celebrate uh, the success of, of Tate Modern and, 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 and London. And, and London and, and of Nick Sorot and his extraordinary achievement even at that point. And, and uh, we did a video exhibition at, um, a, again, a, uh, an empty space, an empty building at King Street in Covent Garden. And we did an all-video show. This was the moment at the turn of the century when video was, uh, I, I guess you'd say video was king. Uh, all the great video artists had more or less emerged at that point. And we were, we were able to do the most extraordinary show. In, in a sense, the memory of that show also uh, encouraged us to do this because we, we, we've done it before and made it work. Um, so we have every expectation that we will get tens of thousands, if not even hundreds of thousands of visitors, which gives the, 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 the live, you know, the, they're all, all living artists, the platform to be seen by a public that doesn't normally go to private art galleries and doesn't even necessarily go to museums like Tate. So it's, it's, it's sort of, we noticed last time, it was a very different audience and had a very different profile of, of uh, publicity. Uh, it's extremely accessible. It's, uh, we, we, there's no charge to get in. And, and it gives, it gives uh, a, a new public the opportunity to see cutting-edge work, even if the work is somewhat historical now. It's still cutting-edge. This is another endeavor that is in, in line with the time, and it's on a very grand scale. You mentioned the space is humongous, and I'm sure a lot of human labor has to go into putting together this kind of show. And you started from a gallery in your own house, and now uh, how, how many people work for you? It's just under 80 people between London and New York. 80 people spread across continents. How do you maintain the wholeness of your vision with such a large team now? There's a combination of factors. I think it's, it's largely to do with the fact that both Nicholas and I are still very, we really are highly, highly involved in which artists we show, the programming. So it's, it's all very unified. But it's also about people, you know, we, there's a certain type of person that we like to work with or 
who is drawn to the gallery. It's, um, I don't know how to describe it. When you meet them, when you meet a listen person, you know who they are. You know, it's really interesting. Even now, after so much time, the best people who work here are people who came here wanting to work here. So, I mean, of course, when at interview, they would say that, wouldn't they? We've always wanted to work for listen. But actually, there's, there's, there's a sincerity and truth to that in most instances, or in, I, I, I guess. What's the difference between um, a historical gallery and a non-historical gallery? A historical gallery makes its own history, which is what we have more or less done. Uh, many of the artists we, we have exhibited have also exhibited with other galleries. But in, in many instances, we showed them for some years before they showed elsewhere. Uh, I, I always said to artists, if you don't look after your history, you won't have any. Because at the end of the day, it's all about longevity, isn't it? But also, also, you know, the successful, one successful generation provides the revenue for the next generation. So um, it, it, it creates a, a, a kind of a family through time. And I might say now, you know, Alex, Alex is so in tune with his time, and, and through that I try to be. Yeah, you, you seem to be very lucky to, to have that continuity and acceptance within the family. I never expected this to happen. Was it a surprise? Uh, yeah, it really was. Alex studied music. And yeah, I, I, was, mm. I, was, I was going to be a musician and that, um, I, uh, I decided it was, it, was, it was going to be a very complicated life. So um, I uh, and I didn't know I didn't I, I didn't know if I was quite good enough to make a living out of it. I, you, when he left school, he was absolutely hell bent on, on, on music. So we 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 we, we found um, a place called the Academy of Contemporary Music, which had just opened. It was incredibly well equipped with some of the top musicians teaching there, etc. And, was... and he hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I think I. Uh... I think I didn't, I think I couldn't quite live with the idea that I would be maybe a, have to be a session musician or a backup, whatever. Or, or a, a flash in the pan stuff. Or, 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 you know, or play at weddings for, you know, to, to, to make ends meet. I, 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 I felt I, in a similar way that you must have felt as an artist. That I, if I was going to do this, I wanted to be able to do it and make a living without compromise. The deciding factor for me at the beginning of the gallery was that there were tens of thousands of artists leaving art school every year. And, and there, were, there were literally only three or four goodish galleries showing, showing um, contempor what, what I would call contemporary art rather than decorative art that is contemporary. Well, it sounds like uh, destiny predetermined both of your courses and being a creative by nature helped promoting others' talents and uh, on a much larger scale than you would um, give to the world just on your own. I'd like to um, wrap up the conversation with a question that's directed towards the future. Do you have any plans for opening other outposts beyond London and New York, perhaps the West Coast? Um, not really. Uh, there's no, no immediate plans to do anything. I think, you know, we only opened uh, New York about 18 months ago. And it really would be too much right now 
And I think London and New York are the most active centers for contemporary art in the whole world. You know, the thing that's most the world amazing comes to these places. The world comes to London and New York. That's the thing. Everyone passes through both London and New York so frequently. Who knows? Who knows what the future holds? But I don't. Uh, there are there are no immediate plans. No. Well, you know, for spaces, you still have to be you have to be very thoughtful to sustain a program in four spaces as it is. And um, the, what makes that possible is that two of them are very close to each other in proximity in the same city. That makes sense. Um, but to, to have multiple galleries, um, it's, it's a different, I'm not knocking it, I, I'm not criticizing it, but it's a different point of view. And it's much more um, uh, uh, sort of dominating the market or... or, or, or um, uh, I think the thing that would be very distressing um, or it, it, would require, it would require both either or both you and I to be far less involved in each and every exhibition. And I think that is something that's something that I think would be hard. It's not um, we, we both get highly involved. In, in each of the shows, in selecting the work, in hanging the work, in, in how the publications look, in, in everything. And it really, that's quite important. And it, it creates, a, it ties things together. And I think it, it would be hard to maintain that with, with uh, a location in another continent or in, you know, whatever. Uh, it's, 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 anyway, we're, I think what we're saying is that um, uh, we're, we're very happy with what we have now, and we want to see that um, taken to a much uh, more uh, evolved level before we think about um, uh, looking beyond those horizons. But uh, you're, you're not missing an awful lot, um, other than other than possibly the new, the very new markets, which um, are not yet sufficiently developed. Uh, in, 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 in the Far East, for example, China in particular, that's an enormous potential market, but, um, and it's moving fast. Uh, it's mostly local artists, or that is to say artists of the region that people find interesting. Um, the next step is for them to find, to, for it to be integrated and to find art generally interesting, that's to say the bigger picture of international art um, so that actually all the good stuff, more or less, uh, is good enough to have an international audience. I think, uh, you know, the world is becoming strangely both bigger and smaller at the same time. And it's, that's, that's an interesting and complicated puzzle to solve. And I think it's something that every gallery faces today. Uh, so it, it sounds like your focused family oriented approach in, in the best sense of the word, meaning uh, your relationship with artists and within the gallery is the main sort of ingredient of your success so far. And we are looking forward to witnessing many more decades of Listen's development and seeing you reinvent yourself again and again while keeping that wonderful approach. I'm good. I'm going to end up telling you a little story, which is, is really for Alex more than me. Richard Long celebrated his, his 70th birthday uh, a couple of years ago, and he gave the most marvelous talk. 
and then there was question time afterwards. And somebody put their hand up and said, uh, Richard, so what are you going to do now you're 70 years old as you grow older? And he said, well, my walks will be shorter and they will take longer. <laughs> a beautiful metaphor for, for me as to how I will deal with looking to the future. And a great encouragement to Alex because he will give, give more and more opportunity. Uh, I, for me, that's absolutely perfect. I don't, I don't believe in giving up, and, and I'm much too interested and curious to think about that, uh, as long as I, I stay well and, 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 and curious. Here's to staying curious and looking forward to the future. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Intelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 